As visions of gift shopping danced in our heads, a report on climate released by the feds. What does it tell us about how Texas may have to adjust? The story today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Political recriminations over the timing of the mandatory report on the economic impact of climate change. Having had a chance to review it, what's it telling Texas? We'll take a closer look. Also, should the U.S. be worried about a collapse in the housing market? The Wall Street Journal singles out a Texas city as a worrisome canary in the coal mine. And who were the first Texans? Why researchers are rethinking their answers with a discovery near Salado. All that and then some today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this Tuesday, November 27th, 2018. I'm David Brown. It is great to have you with us. Hey, you may have heard that GM, General Motors, plans to lay off 14,000 workers at five of its factories. Yeah, that's a huge cut to its payroll workers at the massive factory in Arlington, apparently. Don't need to worry, at least for now, the nation's biggest automaker cutting back production of sedans which people apparently just aren't buying compared to trucks and SUVs in Arlington is where GM makes Tahoes, Yukons, and Escalades. Of course, we've been enjoying low gasoline prices too, which is taking its toll on the energy industry in other parts of Texas. That could hurt the state in other ways. It's a complex dynamic we continue to track here on The Standard. In a few minutes, what one Texas housing market may be signaling to the rest of the nation, but first, we're turning our attention to economic signals from Mother Nature, at least as interpreted by the federal government. You may have missed it during the post-Turkey Day bustle known as Black Friday, but for those willing to look past the discount flyers, there was some very serious news indeed, and its virtual burial during a holiday shuffle is drawing recriminations. The news took the form of a mandatory report that confirms with additional detail what many already know, that climate change is a major threat to the nation, as Paul Krugman discusses in the New York Times today, accusing the Trump administration of being denialist, in his words. Politics aside, it is important to bear down on what this report tells us about Texas and what it might mean for our future. John Nielsen Gammon is the Texas State Climatologist and Professor of Atmospheric Science at Texas A&M. Professor Nielsen Gammon, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. You worked on portions of this study that focus on Texas, right? What, what were the findings in regards to the Lone Star State? We had five key messages we put out. The first one was connected to uh, food, energy, and water, how all of those are interconnected and demands uh, to produce more food, greater water supply, greater energy needs due to growing population, as well as climate change, is going to really force the state to make some trade-offs into who gets what water and, and how that gets distributed. So that's that's the biggest economic impact, I think, uh, on the short term. Uh, now, you say trade-offs. What do you mean specifically? Give me an example of, of the sort of trade-off that might cause some uh, uh, some pain here. Well, water prices, the cost of water is generally much lower than what people would be willing to pay for it, especially in, in cities. Mm -hmm. So in principle, more, greater water resources could be developed, desalination, and so forth. But the problem is that for the amount the people are willing to pay in cities, it becomes basically cost prohibitive for agricultural producers. 
and yet, of course, people in cities need to eat as well as drink. So there's a major issue there with how you actually ensure there's enough water for everybody. Yeah, you know, forgive me, but we've been having discussions about water and and uh, water resources for, gosh, as long as uh, most folks listening have been alive, right? I mean, why is it that we are reaching some critical point, and how far off do you think we really are? Well, I don't think we're at a critical point at this point. You can see evidence of stressors like uh, people being concerned about uh, increased water use associated with uh, uh, hydraulic fracturing for oil and gas extraction. The, the population is growing, and, and we have a good water planning procedure in the state of Texas that, that looks out for um, 50 years to uh, to ensure that we can survive something equivalent to the drought of record. Uh, the, the problem with that, though, is that um, the drought of record is not the worst case scenario. We've we've had worse droughts in the in the distant past based on tree rings, and with with climate change, uh, we're we're seeing an increase in temperature, and that's going to continue. So we'll have more water evaporating and less water available to use in the future. And, and right now, there's not a systematic way of incorporating that climate change impact the same way we do population impact. Let's move back to the Gulf. Uh, are we looking at more Hurricane Harveys in our future as a result of climate change? Well, yeah, I hope not. Harvey was, uh, was such an unusual event that uh, we probably won't see its match anytime soon. Uh, even with climate change, the estimated odds of something as severe as Harvey presently are like one in 9,000 years, according to a recent paper. But um, certainly the impacts of climate change along the coast will increase. We have in Texas the combination of coastal subsidence where the land's sinking, as well as global sea level rise. And that means that uh, places will gradually become more vulnerable to storm surges, from even from nuisance flooding and that sort of thing. And it'll be difficult if the sea level rise rate is high enough for ecosystems to be able to respond. Marshes try to stay in equilibrium with sea level, but if the sea expands too quickly, they can't keep up. And then you have erosion problems and you lose the protection from storm surge. Is there a way to put a price tag on this, on the impact of climate change to Texas? We didn't try to do that because there's so many complicating factors, and it sort of depends to a large extent on how society decides to deal with it. Unfortunately, a lot of the a lot of the economic impacts occur in ways you don't really anticipate. For example, we've seen increase in frequency of heavy rainfall, so that contributes to increased chances of flooding. And places that used to be outside the hundred-year floodplain are now inside of it. The consequence of that is home values go down for these unlucky people that are now inside the floodplain. They have to pay more for insurance. They can't sell their house for as much. And so they've lost money. And that's a climate change impact. Hold that thought on the housing prices. John Nielsen Gammon, he's professor of atmospheric sciences at Texas A&M. Professor, thanks again. Okay, you're welcome. Before the Great Recession, we were warned. Yeah, you may not remember unless you happen to be buying or selling a house at the time. Home prices, which many people mistakenly thought of as a piggy bank that would magically balloon to infinity all on its own, suddenly popped. The rest was history and a hard, complex lesson in economic panic. Fast forward to today. After years of recovery and rising home prices, there are signs that the go-go housing market isn't booming, that is. Are we headed toward another bust? As the Wall Street Journal reports, 
The canary in the coal mine might be right here in Texas. Laura Cusisto reports on the U.S. housing market for the Wall Street Journal. Laura, thanks for spending a few minutes here on the Texas Standard. Of course. Tell us a little bit about this canary in the coal mine. Why? Uh, what city is it and why have you picked it? Uh, so we decided to take a look at Dallas. And Dallas is a really interesting market because you talked about the last boom and bust. And, and Dallas didn't really have a big boom or a big bust the last time around, um, which makes it such an interesting market this time because home prices now have grown about 50% in Dallas since the last peak. Um, and so that gives you kind of a flavor for how hot, just how red hot this market has been. And, you know, as economists say, you know, what comes up does eventually have to come down. Right. Oh, well, that's, I, I guess that's true, but maybe it's a truism. I mean, if it's gone up 50%, uh, why do you think that uh, uh, there are signs for concern? One of the measures that we use for whether home price gains are sustainable is whether they've been in line with income growth. Um, and traditionally, Dallas has been a market where home price gains have tracked really closely to how much incomes have grown, and that allows people to afford those gains. Mm. Um, and that's been thrown off a little bit this time because mortgage rates have been so historically low. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really masked some of the affordability issues that are starting to now become more apparent as mortgage rates are going to start climbing back up to more historical norms. So a, a translation, if you're trying to buy a house, maybe you're a first-time home buyer in the Dallas uh, area, you can no longer count on those low uh, interest rates. And so you've got to think pretty long and hard about whether or not you can swing that down payment and sustain a monthly payment at the higher rates that uh, uh, maybe some of your uh, luckier uh, predecessors in the housing market uh, didn't have to deal with. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I think we're seeing more people do that calculation and say, well, I definitely can't afford that $400,000 plus home uh, and kind of having to move down the price spectrum. And at the very bottom, people just saying, you know what, I just don't think I can afford to buy right now. What do you see, though, a, a bust or do you see a kind of slowdown? And and if it's if it's a slowdown, are we talking about maybe a soft landing here? Nothing to fear in that sort of larger sense. So that's always the hope, uh, and that's definitely what uh, home builders and realtors are going to tell you we're going to have, and they might be right. Um, I think nationally, especially, we're not going to see the housing market bring down the entire U.S. economy the way it did a decade ago. There's just no signs of that level of speculation. Mortgage credit is much tighter. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen less new supply. But Dallas is a market where it's it's harder to call. I don't think you're going to see a sort of Las Vegas style bust, but I definitely think you could see some years where home builders are really struggling to sell, especially some of those higher end homes where lots are sitting empty. Um, I think you're going to see a little bit more pain in, in some of these markets that have really gotten out ahead of themselves. And you don't think Dallas is alone there you, looking across Texas, seeing the same sort of thing, for example? Um, I think, you know, Houston is a tough market to talk about because of Harvey. Um, and that took sort of a lot of sure. homes off the market. And so it's kind of scrambled a little some of the signals with the Houston market. Um, so I mean, I think that's why we sort of see Dallas as like a much clearer example uh -huh. of, of how much home prices have gone up. But I mean, Texas has had a great kind of decade, right? We've seen incredible job growth there. And I think that's likely to continue and that's likely to help prop up the market. But we've also seen a lot of building and a lot of home price growth. Laura Cusisto is a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. She's covering the U.S. housing market. We'll link to her latest at TexasStandard.org. Laura, thanks again. Oh, yeah. Thank you. 
Joining us once again in the studio, it's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. The show's top story, the governmental climate change report that says the effects of global warming are already being felt and warns of more disasters like Hurricane Harvey. It's generating some reaction online on our Facebook page. Gary Glass calls climate change the largest can ever kicked down the road. He predicts the world will never come together on this issue until it's too late for millions. Via Twitter, Joe Deschotel says, hey, Texas legislature, time to take climate change seriously. And the interim tweets, that's more reason for the Ike Dyke, referring there to that coastal uh, uh, spinal project yeah. there along the Gulf Coast. Right. Well, that's just a sampling of the reaction out there, David. I'll be back with more from social media, including this name, Beto O'Rourke. Remember him? I think a lot of folks yes. listening might remember Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, in that town hall yesterday, he said he's not ruling out a presidential run. We'll have more in the news roundup, and I'll be back with reactions to that story and more later in the show. Surprise, you surprise, yeah. surprise, surprise, anyone? Yeah, well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that story or anything else that's making news in your neck of Texas. Reach out to us, won't you? At Texas Standard on Twitter, Wells Dunbar is looking for you. He'll be back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publisher of W.F. Strong's Stories from Texas. Some of them are true. At independent booksellers like River Oaks, The Twig, and Book People, as well as Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and Bucky's. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. As we told you yesterday, the Mexican border closed for several hours Sunday at the San Ysidro port of entry just south of San Diego after a group of migrants in Tijuana tried to cross. It's the second time in recent weeks that Customs and Border Protection has closed the port. Paula Avila is the vice president for international business affairs with the San Diego Regional Chamber of Commerce, and she says local businesses are trying to adapt to uncertainty at the border, but it's difficult. You don't know if how long your border wait time is going to be, and you don't know if there's going to be a closure. And if there's one thing we know is that business does not do well under uncertainty with those types of conditions. Yeah, some folks at the border doing business there, well, that may sound somewhat familiar. Avila says the Chamber of Commerce estimates there's a $2.1 million commercial exchange between San Diego and Tijuana every day. She hopes that federal agencies will reopen the ports as the process now takes about three hours. I don't want to judge CBP's operations or what warrants a closure or not, but I, I do think it's important that we urge government agencies to as quickly and efficiently as possible to reopen the ports of entry uh, after a closure it has taken place. Now, on Monday morning, President Trump said via tweet, of course, that he would close the border permanently if need be. What would that do to Texas's economy? Well, Texas and Mexico share over 1,200 miles of common border, joined by 28 ports of entry and 25 other crossings that allow commercial vehicular and pedestrian traffic. Mexico is Texas's largest trading partner, too. We're talking about nearly $190 billion worth of trade. Watch this space. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Something else we told you yesterday about a proposal in the upcoming Texas legislative session to permit open carry of any firearm in Texas without the need for a permit. But what about obtaining a firearm in the first place? Well, in many cases, the only thing that stands between wanting and getting one is a federal form called the 4473. Once someone fills that out, it goes into the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, or NICS, and when that's approved, if it's approved, the firearm is sold. 
But there are those who see a crack in this system. As Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies reports, gun buyers who lie about their past have little to fear. On the third weekend of every month is the Austin Highway Gun Show. Here, there are rows of tables with vendors with guns laid out for inspection and purchase. Would-be buyers slowly stroll through the venue, gazing at the pistols, rifles, semi-automatics, and shotguns. While some gun sales are not made with a federal firearms license dealer, many are. And for those sales, it's required that the customer undergo a federal background check. That begins when they complete the 4473 form. But there's a catch. The system is only as good as the information and resources put into it. Josh Horwitz is the executive director of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. He says the NICS has some serious weaknesses when it comes to spotting and stopping someone dangerous. If they say, actually, no, in fact, there was someone lying on the forum, it's very difficult for ATF to go out in the field and enforce that because they don't have the resources. For anyone who wants to buy a gun from a licensed dealer, they have to answer 15 questions on the 4473. Are you under indictment? Are you a felon? Were you dishonorably discharged? Have you ever been committed to a mental institution? Lying on the 4473 is a felony that could lead to 10 years in prison and a quarter of a million dollars fine. So that would seem like a strong deterrent to anyone who wants to test the system. But that would depend on how likely the penalty is enforced. According to a recently released audit by the Government Accountability Office, that rarely happens. In 2017, there were over 8.6 million applications to purchase a gun. That resulted in about 112,000 denials. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives investigated 12,710 of those. And how many were prosecuted? 12. That means of all of the investigations, 0.09% were taken to court. If you're that sort of nefarious person, there's really not a penalty. That's Jill Switzer. She's the executive director of Texas Gun Sense. She said someone who is legally prohibited from owning a firearm but who really wants to buy a gun can weigh the odds and lie and try. Federal folks are not at all good at following up on, uh, on the federal level of lie and try. This has allowed some to buy guns that they're not supposed to be able to buy. And among those who successfully got their hands on a gun, Devin Patrick Kelly, better known as the Sutherland Springs mass shooter. Welcome back. We're following this breaking news out of Sutherland Springs, Texas, a shooting taking place at the First Baptist Church there. Uh, multiple on November 5th, 2017, Kelly approached a group of Sunday worshipers and opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle he bought at an Academy sporting goods store in San Antonio, where he was required to fill out a 4473 background form. Two years before, Kelly had been court-martialed, imprisoned, and dismissed from the Air Force with a bad conduct discharge for domestic violence, and he had been confined to a mental health facility. Any one of those events would have denied Kelly the gun that he wanted, but he lied on his form, and he had little to fear because of it. And because the Air Force didn't enter Kelly's records into the National Criminal Background Check database, Kelly got his gun. The GAO report pointed out that the ATF doesn't have enough people to adequately police the large number of 4473 false statements. 
and even with the resources. Getting convictions is tough. It's extremely difficult to prove that someone knowingly and willingly made a false statement on the 4473. Greta Goodwin is the director of the GAO Homeland Security and Justice Team. She said if a prospective buyer is repeatedly rejected, that makes proving a violation a lot easier. Because of the ATF's manpower problem, 13 states have taken up the slack. They are investigating and prosecuting individuals who knowingly give false statements. In 2017, Pennsylvania's Attorney General's Office logged 472 convictions compared to the 12 prosecutions from the feds. Texas was one of the bigger states for denials. Goodwin said Texas is not a state that investigates or prosecutes 4473 falsifiers. In a statement, the Texas Attorney General's Office said this is a crime that is prosecuted at the federal level. But State Representative Gina Hinojosa is working to change that. The Austin Democrat filed a bill in the last legislative session and has filed a similar bill in the coming session that will give local district attorneys the authority to prosecute those who lie on the 4473. What this bill says is that it would be a state violation of law, a misdemeanor, to lie in a background check to try to get a gun, hence lie and try. Hinojosa said gun rights advocates opposed her last bill. They said it was unnecessary because violations were handled at the federal level. But according to the GAO's report, a 0.09 prosecution rate does suggest that closing the lie and try loophole needs some help in Texas. This is about keeping guns out of the hands of people we have already established should not have them. David Martin Davies reporting for the Texas Standard. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Alexandra Hart with a roundup of news from across the state. After originally saying a 2020 presidential run was not in the cards, Beto O'Rourke now says he isn't ruling out the possibility. During his Senate run against Ted Cruz, the three-term Democratic congressman bluntly said he wasn't eyeing the White House. Here he is speaking with 60 Minutes' John Wertheim back on November 4th. I'm saying that if elected to the Senate, uh, I'll serve every day of that six-year term. Um, that I'm not looking at 2020 and, and in fact, I'm, I'm completely ruling that out. Um, not going to do that. Uh, no matter what, win or lose, you're not going to run win in 2020. Win or lose, I, I'm, not, I'm not running in, in 2020. But O'Rourke has since changed his tune. Yesterday, during a town hall in his hometown of El Paso, O'Rourke fielded questions about his plans. He said he was currently focusing on his family and his constituents. That's what we're, we're focused on now, is just being together as, as a family, um, making sure that I deliver um, everything that I can to the people I represent until the 3rd of January. And then Amy and I will, will think about what we can do next uh, to contribute to the best of, of our ability to, to this community. Speaking with reporters afterward, he further clarified that he and his wife have, quote, made a decision not to rule anything out. 
Former University of Texas head football coach Mac Brown is getting back into the coaching game. Today, the University of North Carolina officially announced the hiring of Brown as the Tar Heels' next head coach. Brown coached there 10 seasons before joining UT. He gave current Longhorn coach Tom Herman a job at UT as graduate assistant back in the late 90s. The two have maintained ties. He's been extremely instrumental in terms of providing a great sounding board for me not just on head coaching things, but on being the head coach at Texas and the challenges that that presents itself. Brown won a national title at Texas in 2005 and was responsible for the team's last Big 12 championship back in 2009. He left Texas in 2013 and got into sports broadcasting. He's currently a college football analyst for ESPN. The Longhorns will have a shot at another conference title on Saturday against Oklahoma, their first chance under Tom Herman. Meanwhile, in Aggieland, A&M's raucous on-field celebration of their 74-72 victory over Louisiana State is going to cost the university. The Southeastern Conference has slapped the Aggies with a $50,000 fine after fans streamed onto the field following Saturday's record-breaking game. In a statement Monday, the SEC said the field invasion violated its competition area policy. The conference also said it was looking into a post-game scuffle between an LSU staffer and a credentialed member of the A&M sideline. That's a look at news from across the state. I'm Alexandra Hart for the Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver business-by-design project management solutions to help cross-functional teams monitor projects in real time. More at softwareaspromised.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Who were the first peoples to inhabit Texas? Well, right now we have more questions than answers, but researchers think we might find a few answers, that is, in a thin body of water that flows through central Texas called Buttermilk Creek. Michael Waters has been excavating around the site for over a decade. He's the director of the Center for the Study of the First Americans at Texas A&M University. And in a recently published paper, Waters described a discovery at Buttermilk Creek that could significantly change our understanding of early Texans. Professor Waters, welcome to the Texas Standard. A pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about what Clovis points are and how they differ from your run-of-the-mill arrowhead. Well, Clovis is a, you could call them a people. I mean, it's its technically in archaeology, we call it a complex. In other words, there's certain types of artifacts that are very, very characteristic and made in a very prescribed way. Mm-hmm. The Clovis represents a really brief interval of time, but it's one that's very distinctive and, and the hallmark of Clovis is that Clovis projectile point. Clovis points are uh, fairly large projectile points, robust, that were typically used for hunting. And at that time, people, uh, the Clovis people would have been hunting mammoths and, and other large animals that roam central Texas. Now, when you say at that time, put it on a timeline for us and tell us what's particularly significant about these Clovis points you found. Well, uh, the the Clovis shows up initially on the landscape around 13,000 years ago, mm. and it disappears around 12,700 years ago. But what we found at uh, the Deborah L. Friedkin site were artifacts below the Clovis horizon, which made them significantly older than Clovis. And so uh, we've been excavating there for a, a number of years, and in the last two or three years that we've been doing our excavations, we found projectile points which were different from those Clovis points, you know, in the layers below the Clovis horizon. So let me just be clear here. These points that you have found 
were not part of uh, the Clovis uh, 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 period? You're saying that they predate the, the Clovis? Yes, uh-huh. they, they predate the Clovis time period. Uh, in fact, we published a paper back in 2011 describing the site and, and the artifacts that we found at the site. Uh, but what's new is that we now have projectile points from uh, below the Clovis horizon. And these projectile points are different than Clovis. They, they tend to be lancelet in shape, but instead of, of continuing to expand, they contract down to a stem. Mm-hmm. And these stem points are very, very distinctive and appear to be uh, dating around 15,000 to about 13,500 years ago. So does does this suggest that the first Texans settled around Buttermilk Creek, or is that uh, too much of a leap? Well, uh, the first Texans, yeah, could have uh, uh, settled around the Buttermilk Creek area, but it's uh, I'm a geologist by training, and one thing you have to realize is that these older sediments are number one, you know, uh, rarely preserved, so they're they're going to be extremely rare and hard to find these older deposits. And then, second of all, you have to be able to find the archaeological material in these deposits. The reason that they were found at the uh, at the Friedkin site was because of the fact that we have older deposits. Deposits. It was a, it was an, and also too, it was a, an attractive place to live. So in that area along Buttermilk Creek, you have permanent water, you have a lot of biological resources that you could go gather and hunt, and you also have uh, abundant tool making materials such as Edwards Chert. So, so we we know for sure that the first Texans were, you know, settled along Buttermilk Creek, and but I'm sure they were in other parts of the state, and it's just a, a matter of finding them. So, uh, as a researcher, what new questions uh, does the, this discovery open up for you? Yeah, it just—it's uh, an exciting time to be in First American Studies because. For a very long time, you know, people thought that Clovis were the first people to come to the Americas. And now sites like Buttermilk Creek are showing us, and and the Friedkin site there are are showing us that people were here much earlier than we previously thought. And then we then have to now try to understand who these early people were, and especially what their relationship is to Clovis. Because we know that Clovis developed south of the continental ice sheets that once covered all of Canada at the end of the Ice Age. And so did Clovis develop out of what we just found at the Friedkin site, or did you know Clovis represent another migration that came into the Americas? And so there's, there's many, many questions that uh, you know, come from this research. This is really fascinating stuff. Michael Waters is the director of the Center for the Study of the First Americans at Texas A&M University. Professor Waters, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Now, those of us those of us interested in archaeology and that sort of thing have so much to explore up there around Salado and Waco and all that kind of stuff. It's definitely worth more than a day trip, y'all. Coming up on 39 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Times. A whole lot more ahead. Stay with us. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. My name is Nancy Moyer. I'm a studio jeweler. My jewelry is always about something. I work in sterling silver and alternative materials. 
basically I was influenced by the national conversation about the border wall and ultimately immigration. And so I thought, well, you know, if that's what's going on inside our heads, we're hearing that, it would be interesting to project that outside of our bodies to uh, show that what's going on in our heads, there it is, we're wearing it. You know, you can run into a friend and, you know, oh, that's your concern. And it can also start a conversation. I've got a pendant of Trump's invisible wall, you know, where you can see the uh, cartel on one side throwing the drugs over the top of the wall and people on this side running to get away so they won't get hit. title capture and with the border patrolman capturing someone and it repeats around the wearer's neck over and over and over just the same way you would be hearing it every time you heard the news you know it's that subject over and over and over we're concerned about it and i think we've got people down here who are thinking about it and they see the jewelry and they immediately connect with it it, it softens the grisliness and the unpleasantness. Every time somebody wears one of these pieces, it's like a fresh exhibition for the piece. It gets a new audience. Regular fine art doesn't get that. Jewelry gets it. My name is Nancy Moyer. You are listening to Texas Standard. We are coming up on 43 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Here's a topic that might make some blush, but it's a fact of life. On average, women spend nearly 2,500 days of their life, that's about seven years total, on their period. If women don't have a period product, like a pad or tampon, when needed... It can make for a very uncomfortable and often very stressful situation. Now students at the University of Texas at Austin have found a way to make these products more accessible. KUT Austin's Nadia Hamdan reports. I'm in the Texas Union asking people about their periods. I swear it's not as awkward as it sounds. Even when I ask if they've ever been in a situation where they've been without a tampon or pad and needed one, Their faces immediately express a mixture of laughter and dread as they conjure up similar stories of frustration. So many times it's just like unexpected and you're not prepared and like I can't tell you how many times I've just like wadded up toilet paper. (laughs) In high school I was at a choir competition and I needed it. It just, it surprised me. It came out of the blue. I just started having my period and I had to use toilet paper instead. I just sat there and was like, well, I guess I'm using this one-ply toilet paper (laughs) to just get through the rest of the day until I can go home. That was UT sophomore Molly Miller, junior Grace Stanley, and senior Miraz Rahman. And Rahman is important to this story. She's the vice president of student government at UT. She led an effort to get the university to start a pilot program offering free period products in the women's restrooms at the student unions. 
this project was actually not something that was started by student government. It was something that a lot of groups have been pushing for. Service groups such as the Orange Jackets, the nonprofit called Period, and other organizations have been pushing to get free menstrual products on campus for a while now. But it was Rahman who finally got things moving. Over the summer, she went to the university union's director to first introduce the idea of making period products more accessible. Hey, I know that we don't have period products available for free, but I think it would really help if just temporarily we could have them be sold at the provisions on demand little carts at the union's buildings. There are two student union buildings on campus, the Texas Union and the Student Activity Center. In each of them, there are these small stands called pods, They offer things like snack food, school supplies, and other, quote, everyday essentials. Until Rahman said something, tampons and pads had not been considered everyday essentials. But once she brought it up, the union's director quickly agreed. He was like, oh, yeah, honestly, you know, I'm not sure why I didn't even think of that. So that that can be something that's arranged. And it was. The pods started selling tampons and pads. But Rahman began to wonder if she could actually push for what she really wanted— free tampons and pads in the restrooms. Condoms are freely distributed to everybody. We understand, you know, it's a public health thing where it's infection prevention. But the thing that gets forgotten about the conversation with periods is that the lack of access to these resources is also something that could be a public health concern. Mara started talking about that and I said, yeah, I think we need to launch this pilot program. So we launched a pilot program here at the Texas Union. That's Union's director, Mulugeta Farada. Earlier this month, the old dispensers in the Texas Union bathrooms, the ones that required 25 cents for a tampon or pad, were retrofitted. Now they have bold black lettering on the top that reads free, with a little lever that immediately releases the product. The same thing is expected to happen at the Student Activity Center in the coming weeks. This is uh, the living room of the campus. So we average about 12,000 students coming through uh, our building. The pilot program will last until August. The university unions have budgeted $5,000 to last until then. They want to see how far that takes them, because Ferrade says, ultimately, this is a question about money. Right now, the unions are taking on the full cost of the pilot program, But Ferrade says he plans to partner with other organizations to help raise money if offering these products for free becomes permanent, which he hopes it does. It's a service and it's a hygiene issue for a population of our students. And to me, that makes sense. UT is part of a growing worldwide movement to offer free period products on school campuses. But it's an uphill battle. Even though the topic is being brought up more often, talking about periods is still pretty taboo. And Miraz Rahman says that leads to a big misunderstanding about what people with periods go through. Some of the research that we found was that a good portion of women experience irregular periods. It's not something you can necessarily predict all the time. It's There's a lot of different reasons why people can't just prepare for this in advance. When that happens, buying a pack isn't so easy. A box of tampons or a package of pads range from 7 to $10. And that's not including the sales tax that Texas and 34 other states still apply to those things. For many students who are already struggling financially, that's a lot of money to dish out every time your period comes around. That's why, like we heard earlier, most women just use toilet paper. In the end, Rahman says the unions are a great start. But her ultimate goal is to make sure there are no barriers whatsoever for people who experience menstruation— 
This includes those in the transgender community who would want access in both men's and gender-neutral bathrooms. Rahman says, for now, her plan is to just keep talking about periods. And hopefully, enough people listen. Of course, I'll try to do my part to have those conversations and to educate people. But if I'm not met halfway, it's not something that um, I'm going to be able to do by myself. In Austin, I'm Nadia Hamdan for The Texas Standard. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. You got to tune to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Given stereotypes and such, there are two groups that, uh, at first glance and perhaps from afar, may appear to have very little in common. But that may begin to change somewhat today with the launch of a new organization that brings these two groups together. It is called the Texas Latino Jewish Leadership Council, modeled after a fairly new national group by a similar name. SMU professor Luisa Del Rosal is one of its members, and she joins us now. Welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. I understand that uh, you are taking part in today's grand launch. What is the Texas Latino Jewish Leadership Council? So, David, this comes as an idea of forming an alliance and coming together as a coalition to really advocate for more civic engagement. When, as you very well said, sometimes you look at these two groups, Latinos and the Jewish community diaspora here in the U.S., and you think, well, what do they have in common? And we have a lot in common, actually. Uh, we are actually groups of very diverse backgrounds that, that share together an identity, where it is because of faith or because of shared languages. And yet we are here. Uh, the largest diasporas, for example, from Mexico and Israel are here in the United States. And so there's a lot of where we can learn from each other and work together because we share visions of migration policy, trade and investment policy that are very similar. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the history. Uh, I guess uh, Jews have been in Latin America for quite some time, uh, although it's it's a part of the history that doesn't get a whole lot of attention. It does not. And so after World War II, we saw a big draw of uh, diaspora, Jewish diaspora, especially to Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting, and specifically Mexico had a, a much more open policy towards welcoming migrants after World War II. So we saw a lot of Latino, Jewish Latinos. And then some of them immigrated here to the United States and became very powerful voices and advocates uh, for issues for the Jewish community in the United States and abroad. Mm -hmm. So there was a natural alliance for those Jewish Latinos that saw, hmm, maybe we should come together with other Latinos here in the United States and talk about the issues that we share. So this has been going on since 2013 is when it was officially established that the Mexican consulates in the United States would work with the American Jewish Council in, in starting these chapters so we can discuss joint initiatives. I have to ask you about your own sort of personal affiliation with this group. What is it that, that draws you to it? So one of the issues that I see, and not only as an academic, but as a, you know, a Texican, is that sometimes when you don't find ways to share ideas or coalition build, you are not part of the table when decision making is happening. Um, so I decided to get involved with the American Jewish Council because I've long admired how the Jewish community can advocate for themselves in the United States and for issues that are important for the community. And I said, why can we as Latinos do the same? And so I, I reached out and said, what can 
can we do? What can we do together? Because it was important for me that Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, Texicans have a voice when we're talking about policymaking um, and how important we are for the Texas community. But I don't think that many people would have seen this alliance necessarily the way that you did. I mean, you saw it fairly clearly. Did you have some kind of personal experience that, that drew you to uh, the, the, the experience of Jewish uh, folks? I did have the opportunity to travel to Israel. Oh. I was just fascinated with uh, the the development, the the growth, and and there are a lot of the same issues that uh, Israel and Palestine are looking. That we can sometimes look at the Mexico U.S. relationship. Um, how do you enforce borders and secure uh, communities while also satisfying the need of growth and human capital um, and interaction between two neighboring states, two neighboring nations, two neighboring communities. And maybe my passion as an academic demonstrated me that when you are sometimes not on the table, you're in the menu. Uh, so how do we get on the table? And the Jewish community has done a great job of being surrounding and policymakers with ideas and um, good, good, good facts that could help the community. And that's where I was inspired as a Mexican. That's a pretty stark visual there. Uh, if you're not at the table, you may be on the menu. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I have to ask you if it's some accident uh, or happy coincidence that you're making this announcement with just weeks to go before the start of the next Texas legislative session. Right. I think I, I think it's really well planned. I think we absolutely are looking at how can we make sure our legislature is, is looking at our communities as uh, as partners. Luisa Del Rosal is with the newly formed Texas Latino Jewish Leadership Council. She's also executive director of the Mission Foods Texas Mexico Center at Southern Methodist University, SMU. Professor Del Rosal, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Have a great day. And you too. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. He's been monitoring Texas for all the live long days. Our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Yeehaw. As we heard. <laughs> Amen. Well said. Well, as we heard earlier, David, Beto O'Rourke, fresh off a narrow loss to Ted Cruz in the race for U.S. Senate, says he's not ruling out another run in 2020, and that could include a one run for the White House. Uh, O'Rourke obviously inspired a lot of passionate support on the campaign trail, and we're seeing that on social media via Twitter. Just read says, I think if Abraham Lincoln can lose the Senate seat and then win the presidency two years later, then Beto O'Rourke can do it too. He's had so much national support on his Facebook live feeds, and his allure is not at all limited to Texas. Vamos, Beto. And it is pretty interesting. You know, I remember uh, seeing these pictures of, like, you know, yard signs in, like, California. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, Ohio. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. But there are some other perspectives out there as well. Neil Ellis Orts on our Facebook page says, not yet. I want him to take another shot at the Senate first. He has too much potential to rush mm -hmm. into the highest office. And Dan DeHart says, I did block walks for his campaign and voted for him, but I'm not sure he is experienced enough to be president. I'd like to see him as a vice president, though, with a presidential run down the line. And Doug McCullough raises an interesting point here. So Texas will be a battleground state. The political ads will be insufferable. I may sell my TV. And it really would, uh, I mean, yeah, that really would be interesting. A potential Beto O'Rourke, Donald Trump matchup in Texas. Yeah, what you would know, that look like? I, it's interesting. Jonathan Tylove, uh, giving credit where credit yeah. is due, has done a terrific analysis of this for the Austin American Statesman. We talked to Jonathan yeah. the other day, and we'd encourage you to go to texasstandard.org. Check out uh, that piece and uh, conversation and the article uh, that we uh, based it upon. Uh, it's uh, Interesting to think, I, I think a lot of people are thinking, why not take on John Cornyn right. in 2020? Because he's, uh, you know, of that course, he's going to be running for re-election. Yeah. 
Well, so, I suppose here's the you know shifting gears. I suppose we got to talk about this one, David. Prepare yourself. An okay. Austin-themed food hall has opened in Brooklyn. An Austin-themed br- uh, food, food hall, hall in Brooklyn. I'm just in Brooklyn. wrapping my head around. Yes, that and there. the takes on Twitter are certainly hotter than any salsa on the menu. Yes, Ooh. you heard right. The Hill Country Food Park opened in downtown Brooklyn yesterday. Okay. Serving what they assure us are Austin staples like barbecue, of course, mm-hmm. breakfast tacos, naturally, something called Mex Tex. Okay, and that famous Hill Country staple pizza from a place called Ostino's, <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> Yeah. It sounds it's, like a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I mean, the pizza's okay, yeah, yeah, but I'm yeah. thinking more Chicago. Than, <laughs> yeah, uh, a little bit. So, so this article Brooklyn on foodie website Eater sort of uh-huh. gave, gave you a little tour and tour, it showed all these places, and, and that went viral with plenty of people I'll weighing bet. in. Yes, Brian Curtis tweets, We finally answered the question, what if Disneyland opened an Austin section of the park? Chris Plante says, so much amazing food in Austin. Bold move not to feature any of it. Yikes, and so on and so forth. And it is, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the Austin brand is so strong. Uh-huh. Well, there we are. We'll see. Uh, what's it called again? Hill Country? The Hill Country Food Park. Food Park. Mm. All right. All right. Just We're like out of Mom time. Lucky us. Uh, but we'll be back on the air tomorrow. Hey, you can keep up with all the news, as I was saying a few minutes ago, texasstandard.org. Wells is going to be here. I'll be here. Only thing missing is you. We hope you can join us. Till then, have a terrific Tuesday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. PRI Public Radio International.